Hello and welcome to this evening's 5 by 15 event with Jay Rayner and Dr. Annie Gray. And it's a great honor to have them both back with us, both of them alumni of 5 by 15. But tonight for a one hour um, special conversation and um, we're thrilled that you are all joining us now live online and also on the catch up webinar for what promises to be a hilarious evening. So Jay Rayner is an award-winning writer, broadcaster, author and jazz pianist, as many of you will know from his previous 5 by 15 performances, which we um, loved, and the fact that he improved so much between the two. Um, but he's, of course, best known and beloved as the restaurant critic of The Observer. And his new book, which is called Chewing the Fat, brings together some of his funniest and best columns um, into one compendium. And I know that many of you have pre-ordered, but um, new and books will be very happy to help. And details of the books are going to be put in the chat from Stephanie. Um, he's also well known as the judge um, on MasterChef and since 2012 has been the chair of BBC Radio 4's food panel, The Kitchen Cabinet. And um, of course, um, Dr. Annie Gray is also um, well familiar to everyone um, from Kitchen Cabinet. Um, and she's the author of the official companion book, The Kitchen Cabinet, A Year of Recipes, Flavors, Facts and Stories for Food Lovers, which also has a foreword by Jay. So um, she's one of She's one of Britain's leading food historians, a broadcaster, author and consultant, and her other books include The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria and the, fifth, the forthcoming a Chris, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages, which will be out in November. As ever, books are available from Newham. To all of you who pre-ordered, thank you very much. And please don't forget to put your questions in the Q&A box and uh, Annie will come to as many as she can towards the end of this session. For now, I will disappear into the virtual wings and say welcome to you both and thank you for being here. And over to you, Annie. Hello, Annie, you need to unmute yourself. <laughs> God, I'm such a pro. Yeah, have um, you done this before? Hello. <laughs> yeah, a couple of times, um, but you know, Mouse is a very long way away from me. I've got very short arms. Um, thank you to everybody who's joining us. Thank you to Jay for being here. Thank you as well to Jay for writing such a brilliant book. Uh, I'd read a lot of the columns that go that went into this book previously, and I read them all again with a smile on my face. I think it's a lovely, lovely book and one that brings joy in a time which, let's face it, isn't that joyous at times. Well, that's, that's all I want to bring to the world is joy. I noticed that Daisy said I was beloved as a restaurant critic. I thought, well, depends who you are, really, doesn't it? <laughs> depends yeah. what I, side of the fence you're sitting on. Probably depends as well a little bit on whether or not you're one of your regular below-the-line commenters as well. Because yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Yes. Don't go there. No. Um, people will know you for all sorts of things, I suspect, whether it's the kitchen cabinet or whether it's jazz or whether it's broadcasting or whether it's just as the man with really big hair who they see on TV. It's quite flat now. I went to the gym just about an hour ago, so it's sort of damp. This oh, is this is this is key right. content, isn't it? Yeah. If I take it off, see? Oh, there you go. There's not a lot. No, I know. I know. When it gets damp, it, it gets, this is what people have logged on for, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hair, 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 hair This hair is hair what it's about, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. Um, let's talk about the book shall we instead shall we? Shall right. we? okay um it's a collection of your columns but tell us about why you decided to write it how you did it you know how you managed to achieve anything really this year and also what's the motivation behind it all right so what happened was during the first lockdown at the beginning of 2020 I realized that I was the proverbial eunuch at the orgy as in, I was a restaurant critic without any restaurants to review. 
I had to film. I got I got that line away on um, ITVs this morning at one point, I think. So I'm quite proud of it. Um, I realized I, I had I had to think about how to fill a restaurant column when I couldn't go to restaurants. And I'd started to think very heavily about what it actually meant to go out to eat, because it's never just about, you know, is the oh, the lamb's overcooked, the fish is raw. It's it's about so many other things. And as seeking some kind of guidance from myself, I went looking at these, this column that I've been writing for Observer Food Monthly for over a decade now. It's a difficult, I mean, journalists should never complain about the difficulties of their job. There are many, many harder jobs to be done. But in the, in the, in the grand scheme of being a journalist, writing 600 words, it's always 600 words on the nose, in a way that is engaging and makes a point and doesn't hang around and doesn't waffle, it's quite interesting, quite tough. And I started reading these and I thought, actually, you know what? There's, there's stuff in here that if you take out the time-tagged ones, because I write for a newspaper, so some of them are going to relate to the news, you remove those. Actually, there's a lot of fun stuff in here which could come together very, very nicely. Now, obviously, it has to be said, as all, all writing is an act of arrogance. It is, you know, you're saying, I've got something to say, which you must hear. It's very arrogant. And I suppose deciding to bring together columns that have been published elsewhere in the same way is double arrogance. You're saying these are so good. They outlive the medium in which they were born. But I think they do. Um, and so it was a case of removing all the ones which were time tagged, removing those that had already led in other directions, because a previous book of mine, Ten Food Commandments, some of those started with a, with a column, and then com compiling them. And I was rather struck, because people, I think, think of me as a, I think the technical term is miserable bastard, um, based on the fact that two of my previous small books have been collections of my most negative restaurant reviews. And I only did that because at the time I was pretty much convinced that the only thing people would ever read in book form of mine, like that of old journalism, was the negative reviews. And, you know, it turned out I was right because people are horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, and this... to be fair, I mean, the George Sank has made you most hated person in France. So let's. Oh, that's absolutely well true. That's absolutely true. But the rest of the world like me. So, you know, you've got to put the things in the scales. Um, but this one is a much more. I think there is a section in the book called Hate Springs Eternal. We'll talk about that. But I think it's a much more positive book because it is born from a place of joy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I think it is joyous. There's a, an awful lot there. I mean, you've published 12 books, so not all of your books are negative. Let's face no, it. No, no, There's no, quite no. a lot of uplifting fiction and things to make you think and, you know, so on and so forth. But I think one of the things that struck me about the book was the way in which you grouped the, the columns. So when you read them, I mean, you know, I read them on a Sunday morning or a Monday or whenever, and you read it and you think, oh, that's fun. And then you go about the rest of your life. And it might be another six months before you touch on the same topic again. So I think it's right what you say that when people read them, even if they read the columns before, the grouping of them brings something new. So you've got Hate Springs Eternal, but there's also um, the stuff on self-therapy, there's stuff on your pet peeves, there's stuff on what's in your kitchen. There's, I mean, there's quite a lot of, of stuff covered there and a lot of themes that come out, actually. I think what's what interests me uh, when trying to seek a theme for this column, I have to write the next one tomorrow, funnily enough, um, is how within that form of 600 words, you have to find um, a substantial subject that you can nag away at in some detail. So there's, there's a column in there which is all about, a piece in there which is all about my absolute disbelief that a man can wear a white shirt to dinner 
and get up from the table without gravy down his chest. Yeah, I mean, I've eaten with you. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So to bring an umbrella. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's about. You would think that there's someone who is literally paid, paid to, you know, to go out to restaurants that I would have mastered the skill of not dribbling my lunch down my front. But apparently not. Have I, you tried non-stick? Apparently Fanny Craddock's evening gowns that she notoriously cooked in were in fact made out of silicon. Oh, what really? And yeah, that was, was and that well, that is that is a, a nugget of information from from the vaults that we. That's what we get come to you for. It's, it's the big box, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, my my mother, my late mother, used to do it a lot. She used to dribble food all over her, her chest, but then she had quite a sizable one. So I don't. I mean, I, well, maybe I do have that excuse. You know, it's been a long lockdown. Um, <laughs> but the the and, and look, we, I've spent two minutes talking about pouring food down my front and. <laughs> I reached the conclusion that the person who gets up from the table completely pristine, you know, snowfields of linen, are just not greedy enough. And that's why they're capable of, of doing so. And they're not worthy, actually, of our admiration, just of our pity. So it's, it's, it's finding those things that are going to sustain, however small they look, um, but actually tell us something about how we live on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's have an example, because I think one of the lovely things about this book is the prose. And I know, you know, I occasionally walk down the street with you. And one of the things that invariably happens is that somebody will jump out at you and say, Jay, I want to be just like you. And your usual response is, well, can you write? And they'll say, I love food. And you'll say, but can you write? And one of the things I think that you're very well known for and that indeed you win awards for is writing. It's prose. So pick an essay, your favourite one. And let's have it. All right. This isn't look. They're, they're all my darlings. Um, I, I love them all equally. But I do remember at the point when I realised I was going to write this one that uh, there was a certain joy because I was going to get to make a point uh, that I'd wanted to make for a very long time. Um, it is from the chapter in, uh, entitled "Hate Springs Eternal." So after all that speech about loveliness and positivity, I'm going negative right from the off. It's called "My Life Is Not a Picnic." After please come to my superhero-themed wedding, the most distressing leisure-time proposition in the English language has to be, fancy a lovely picnic? No, I don't. Picnics are never lovely. Picnics are where lunch goes to die. Yes, I know, I'm not meant to say this. Each summer, by convention, magazines are given over to gloriously photographed picnic features, many of which I have contributed to. And so, confession, every time I've done so, I have been colluding in one big fat lie. We dream of a life that echoes the pages of the Bowdoin catalogue in which all women look good in a wrap dress, all men look fine with their top three shirt buttons undone, white-toothed children entertain themselves for hours and the elders of the tribe smile beatifically at everything about them as together we lay into a feast of such largesse the Greek gods themselves would have to invent a bunch of other gods just so they could thank them for their huge good fortune. The reality... It's impossible to look elegant while sitting on a sloping hillside or a beach, especially at my age. Bits of me are always trying to make a bid for freedom. Sod muffin tops, I'm packing half the cake counter at Greg's. The kids are either punching each other or poking a dead maggot-infested bird with a stick. There's something from the wrong end of an animal caked on your shoes and Granny's going to advanced stages of anaphylactic shock, having been stung by the wasp that got bored of dive-bombing the last mulched-up strawberries that didn't fall out of the picnic bag when it opened accidentally. Ah yes, picnic food. It's awful. A waste of agriculture, for here is what no glossy supplement will ever tell you. The quality of an eating experience decreases in direct proportion to the distance it travels from its point of origin. 
Chicken wings are lovely straight out of the oven. After they spent six hours festering in a warm Tupperware box, eating one is as much fun as chewing on one of Gollum's sweaty knee joints. Potato salad, which had bite and substance while cooling on your kitchen table, ends up looking like it's taken a beating in a cement mixer and is now designed only for those without recourse to teeth. Or there's worse. The host comes over all ambitious. There's a poached fish which is falling apart quicker than Michael Jackson's face. Or a roast rib of beef, which looks great, but which is impossible to eat because nobody thought to bring a sharp enough knife with which to carve it. Or if they did, it's impossible to carve while rested on your lap without performing an unelective vasectomy. The cold drinks are warm, the hot drinks are tepid, the soft fruit is mashed, the hard fruit is bruised, the quiche looks like it's already been eaten and come back out the wrong way, and even the filling of the pork pie is disengaged from the mothership of its pastry shell. Only the grapes look like grapes. This is no consolation. I like tables and chairs and rooms to put them in. I regard these things as progress. The last time us Jews were forced to eat alfresco, it's because the Cossacks were coming. If I want the great outdoors while eating, I'll open a bloody window. You want a picnic? Good for you. I'm staying here in the kitchen where the food tastes nice. Have a great summer. <laughs> and I'm really just going to assume the 234 participants are now laughing their pants off and applauding like mad. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. Let's face it. Well, I don't think you do disagree, do you? you uh, the Victorian way of doing a picnic was was rather more civilised, wasn't it? Well, I think it was, there were a lot of tables involved. I mean, you look at Queen Victoria's picnics and there were massive tables, tablecloths, marquees, waiters, lot of booze as well. Um, and no soggy sandwiches in sight. And I regard sandwiches as an abomination anyway. So, um, yeah. I mean, I agree. I have to say, I know that much of the book is not negative, but there mm -hmm. were sections which had me nodding along. I mean, the idea that somebody takes the bread away at the end of the starter has been... What's that about? Stuff. What is that? It happens in a particular kind of restaurant. Mm. Fain Daining, spelled F-A-I-N-E, Daining, D-A-I-N-E. Fain Daining. Um, and so you've had the starters and they've done the whole thing with here's the bread basket. And then at the end of it, they take it away. They take the plate away as if you have had your bread. Yeah. You're not allowed any more bread. The main course is coming. The chef has had thoughts and it doesn't involve you eating. Uh, what? What? I, know, I am intrigued. What? But I, I mean, I, I, I've taken to keeping the bread now um, really ostentatiously. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I do that. So that I can mop up the gravy. It's just to me, it's I mean, you've got a chapter on, on kind of the things restaurants do wrong and you've got things, you know, just do it. You've also got a section on buffets, which also have me go. Yes, yes. Well, yes, of course. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot there to, to nod along and agree with. Um, dessert Parsley. I read the essay called Dessert Parsley, and I yeah, have okay. to admit, I saw the title and I thought, oh, it'll be ice cream made out of parsley. I've made that and I've made it. What can Jay possibly not like about Dessert Parsley? And then I read it. So explain Dessert right. Parsley. So Dessert Parsley actually arrived. You see, you're going for all the negative ones. And we're, we're <laughs> Positive ones as well. But I didn't think um, dessert parsley would be negative. I thought it would be a, a, a okay. joyous. Um, I'm pretty sure it's um, also in that Hate Springs Eternal chapter. It arises out of my particular hate of one of one word, which is garnish. The word to garnish. Gar a garnish is super is, is is an exercise in superfluity. If you see somebody get a pair of tweezers out to add something to your plate you know you're in trouble because there is no point to the thing they're putting on with, with tweezers because it will, even if you do register the taste, it will be so small, it will be gone. And for me, the zenith or apio, a, a, apoth, 
ap- say this word for me, ap- apios, ap- apos- the bottom. That thing? Yeah, not the zenith, the bottom. Yeah. Um, like, thank you. Uh, is what, and, and it wasn't my line, it was the late, great Charles Campion, um, who was also one of the judges on uh, MasterChef, referred to as dessert parsley, which, he, which is a, a basil leaf placed on a dessert in the same way that a chiffonade of parsley is sprinkled across bloody everything to make it look like it wasn't reheated and is just fresh um plating plating a little little twig of dessert parsley on your dessert just to make dessert parsley yeah basil I all mint leaves a, really i was sent a pair of tweezers with uh, a meal kit in lockdown and i thought it was great no i'm sure you did because uh, and i i can kind of you know, trying to plate dishes at home that end up looking like restaurant dishes when you're in the middle of a murderous pandemic that's killing everything in its wake. Actually, I see that as, um, it was you know, an, it was... an exercise in mindfulness. Yeah, I do it, re- I recognize it was designed that. as such, I think. But we've got onto restaurants and obviously restaurant critic is probably your main job title. Um, it's only the it, one. It's, yeah, it's the thing I'm known best for. And... The thing that I am very attentive to, I've been doing it for a bloody long time and I like it very much. It's very nice to be paid to go out for dinner, although I always say that I am uh, I do the eating for free. It's the writing I get paid for. And I'm very attentive to that. I'm also very aware that if I ever thought, uh, oh, I'm so established in so many other things that I can just stop being a restaurant critic now um, and, and quit, everything else would collapse. Um, and I have an example of this. That some people uh, online tonight will remember my mother, Claire, and she was an agony aunt, and she always said that if she stopped writing a problem page, everything else would fall apart. And it did, actually. She just chose the time to do it. So, yeah, it is it is key to what I do, regardless of whether it's the biggest source of income. It's absolutely key. In that case, yeah. big question. What's mm. your ideal in a restaurant? What do you really look... Given you, you have to eat out professionally at least once a week or on average once a week, What's your kind of what are your what are your killer list? I mean, you talk about this a bit in the book, but you're what, what do I what do I what am I really looking for? Yeah, I'm looking for a room that I want to be a part of. I'm looking for, for that room that when you're walking down the road and you look through the plate glass window on the outside and you see people looking happy or contented or talking or interested, perhaps their faces are you know lit up by candles on the table, whatever, and you suddenly think, well, that looks like a nice space to be. Um, I'm not looking for the greatest food created in the history of humanity. Nice food is really important. You know, great cooking is thrilling. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I am a, a, a rather greedy man. I like being fed well. But it's about being in a room where you feel like the world has been shut away and you can really get into the nutty, you know, the nutty stuff of life. Um, I, this is self-referential because obviously I have a podcast where I do this. I take big names to, to a restaurant and I get to talk. But what's interesting is if you put plates of food in front of people, they really do start to disclose stuff. And in a way, I think that's what I'm really addicted to is disclosure. Um, you know, those nights we've all spent together in, in, in the before times when we've been on the road with the kitchen cabinet and we've been overnighting, we've stopped in restaurants. The chatter just goes on and on and on. So certain things need to facilitate that, which means that the food needs to, to be nice, i.e. not ludicrous or unpleasant in a way that's going to distract you. The service needs to be on point in a way that's not going to distract you. 
the decor needs not to be ludicrous or stupid. Be good if the lighting wasn't of such a degree that I have to turn on the torch on my iPhone. I'm 55. Um, and these are magnifying by a factor of two. Um, so please. Uh, I know it's a, a middle-aged obsession, but if you want to put music in there, okay. But can you remember that it does actually get too loud at times? Uh, do not have um, confusing signs on the loo doors while we're at it. <laughs> I got a whole column out of that one. Yeah, <laughs> I quite enjoyed that one as well. The gulls and boys is particularly irksome, I find. I've seen that several times. Oh, what about the one in um, York? Uh, is it Helga's and Olaf's? Are you standing going, what? what? The, I can't even. What? what Helga? Oh, I see. I mean, okay. So as long as you're completely across the female male names of in, in Norse mythology, you're absolutely fine. Um, it's all of those things. And I think people will be slightly surprised that, you know, I'm sometimes called a food critic. I say, I'm not a food critic. I'm a restaurant critic. I'm telling you how much pleasure your money will get you. Um, and whether this room will facilitate you having a good time. But you also enjoy eating out alone, don't you? Because there's a column in the book about your, and I obviously, I mean, anybody who is listening who travels a lot for business, whether you're doing it on a freelance basis on your own budget or whether you're doing it sort of paid for, you'll all have that experience of going into a restaurant. Well, first of all, of deciding whether or not you can even be bothered to go and whether or not you're just going to bring cold pizza from home, although that might just be me. Yeah, uh, but that just... experience when it might just be me, actually. When you go into a restaurant and you think, OK, am I going to enjoy myself tonight? Am I in that right mindset or am I going to resent this? So tell us a bit about eating on your own. I think eating on your own, you, you, you have to in embrace it. I mean, I've had, you know, the depressing experience. Actually, should I tell you the story of the first, the, my first memory of doing it on work? I was a very young journalist um, and I had just pulled off a proper investigative coup. I'd managed to get my hands on photographs that incriminated some very serious people, proper investigative journalists. Some people may not know that that's what I did before I, you know, picked up the knife and fork. I'm in the holiday in Birmingham. And I decide to phone up a restaurant and I say, can I get a table for one, please? And the man at the end of the phone laughs at me and hangs up. I call another place can I table for one? and he also goes, you sure? And then hangs up at three or four of these until I get to one. I say, can I get a table for one, please? And he goes, well, on Valentine's night, tough break. <laughs> I, I hadn't <laughs> clocked it was Valentine's night. Um, I, <laughs> It turned out there was a restaurant in the holiday in Birmingham. They could give me a table and they did seat me um, and said, and would sir like a magazine. Um, and I have to tell you, the only other time that's happened has been in a fertility clinic. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, so, but in better times, it can be a, a, a beautiful thing. You know, the old joke, it, it's dinner with someone you love. Um, the growth in counter eating, certainly in London, but it's all over the place now, I think is a really good thing. It's a, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't necessarily feel alone when you're, you're sitting at a counter with the chefs on the other side shoving the food across towards you. Um, it's brilliant for people watching. And I love people watching and, you know, working the stories of what's going on in their lives and who they might be. Um, but I think you just have to, have to <clears throat> be up for it. Uh, if you're if you're feeling sort of embarrassed or in some way feeling lonely or whatever, don't do it. Get a takeaway in your room. It's fine. But I think, you know, you should be able to embrace it. Order a, you know, a stupid wine. Order the kind of food that perhaps your partner, if you've got one, would disapprove of heartily. Enjoy it with gusto. It's great. Toddle out, you know, slightly pissed.
If I can say pissed at five to yeah, of course I can. Well, you've said it now, haven't you? So it's I have it out there. I mean, if anyone's <laughs> listening to this with their children at ten thirty in the morning on catch up, then uh, well, yeah, they're yeah. going to learn it anyway, aren't they? So to be honest, it's not awful. Can you imagine the the warnings we had to put out ahead of the Miriam Margulies episode about to lunch? <laughs> <laughs> I actually stopped the theme music halfway through and said, "If you if you haven't paid attention now, really turn this off if you've got kids nearby." Anyway. Uh, yeah, we used to do a really rude gag when I used to work on the ghost trail, believe it or not. And uh, I once had a child laugh at it uh, and the mother turned around and whap the child. And I just thought, well, do you know what? The child got it and I didn't teach the child to get that gag. So, you know, hands up, not my fault. Yes, um, yes. I think another thing that people don't tend to realise about you is that you cook as well. Uh, I know the below the line comments, you always get someone who says, oh, well, you know, it's easy for you to say you don't you don't know how to cook this stuff. But one of the things that really comes through in your columns, and obviously I know you anyway, is that you love a good cookathon. You love to be in the kitchen. Often it must be said on your own. Say, tell us what you're like in the kitchen, Jay. All right. I'm a, I'm a bloody nightmare is the truth. Just leave me alone. <laughs> I mean, I, it has to be said, there are some people I can cook with. And one of the columns in there is, is about the, the way you can realise that you can trust someone for life uh, with everything is if you can cook with them. So summer holidays, you know, I've got a few kids, our friends have got kids, they're all turning into young adults now. But we tend to take a large house somewhere nice and we cook. Um, and getting dinner on the table for 14 or whatever it might be requires a bit of um, commitment. So I, I, the people we go with tend to be people I know I can cook with. Otherwise, though, if I'm getting into a project, I want to be left alone um, because I know what I'm doing and you'll probably only get in the way and then I'll get grouchy. Um, and the worst, I have a terrible habit, which is sort of if somebody else is cooking, by somebody else, I mean my long-suffering wife, Pat. Um, and I think what she's doing, she's slightly getting it wrong. I'll so passive-aggressive, stand over her shoulder going, do you, do you really think you want to do it like that? Do you? Do you re- I'm horrible. I'm a horrible man. I'm amazed but you no- don't have stab wounds, because if you did that to me, I'm afraid to say that, uh, you know, you find I, I would, out what exactly Victorian pestle and mortar can do. I know, I, I would be absolutely deserving of them. But um, I, fi- I, I find... Pr- cooking apart from anything else i'm you know i'm greedy i can't eat in restaurants all the time therefore i sometimes have to cook the stuff myself i love the process um because i don't want to get into you know mindfulness rubbish but there is something about the way you can take control of the world in a complicated time if everything else is falling apart you can you know you can't get your kids to put their bloody socks on or whatever um i'm 17 so but uh that's my youngest um, you can take ingredients, bend them to your will, and you you kind of get purchase on the world through them. And I, yeah, I love them. But you're right. One of the things that happened, particularly during the second lockdown, the beginning of this year, was it the third? I, I sort of lost count. Was again not having restaurants to review. I started cooking my way through some of the key cookbooks as I saw it. Some people were very cross with my choices. But I, I cooked from 12 what I thought modern classics. And I would say that the one, what I'd regarded as my serious weakness, which was pastry, both literally and figuratively, as in literally in making pastry and figuratively and as in making desserts. Um, well, I, I, you know, I haven't beaten that to, into the ground, but I feel a lot more confident with it. And making Gary Rhodes, the late Gary Rhodes custard tart was a great moment for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I we did a lot of cooking, obviously, during mm-hmm. lockdown, including stupidly exotic Saturday dinner parties. And there was a, a definite sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking as one who's currently constructing a castle out of pastillage, which is a really stupid thing to do that I don't recommend to anybody. What are pastillage? Pastillage, as in um, sugar plate. And of course, it's me, so I'm using a Tudor recipe because I can't get modern recipes for this stuff to work. So I'm you're, using... You're creating a castle out of sugar plate. And, and this isn't for us. This isn't for Kitchen Cabinet, is it? Sadly not. Although, you know, one day we'll be on the road again. Um, but uh, no, it's it's for a... I really hope she's not listening. Okay. For someone. Yeah. Anyway, let's just skip on to that. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Bye. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so moving on. Let's talk about Christmas. Because it's only... Well, I, like, I mean, look, I, I, well, you're right. One, uh, can I say, headline, I like Christmas. I've always liked Christmas. Um, I may be, it, it may be the case that I like the days running up to Christmas and some of the days after Christmas slightly more than the day itself. I think we sometimes freight it with such meaning and pressure that we give ourselves a hard time. Um, and, you know, I have written commandments for Christmas, which basically roll down to do not try to create the perfect Christmas as seen on Nigella or Jamie, or Tom Kerridge, because that's not really their Christmas either. They've got a whole bunch of home ex. They've got technicians to string the lights and make it all look twinkly. Uh, your Christmas is not likely to look like that. Uh, there, you know, there may well be a racist aunt or uncle knocking around that you have to just deal with and live with. You have everybody's different likes and dislikes. Um, I would say very strongly, do not attempt to do too many dishes. Uh, nobody will actually mind. Nobody will die if you don't do six sides. Uh, it's okay to buy things in sometimes. There are some very good things on the market if that makes it easier. Uh, I think the, the one of the pieces in here which drove people most nuts was when I kind of gave away the secret, uh, which was that one of the joys of cooking Christmas lunch was you got left alone for the you know a massive slab of Christmas day. Uh, everybody else had to sit around and entertain whoever was in the house. And but they I, had to wash up afterwards. I got to cook lunch quietly, doing the thing I enjoyed. Then they had to be grateful to me, and then I got excused the washing up. And I got an enormous number of emails going, you bastard, what have you done? You ruined my... They're going to know. They're going to know now what you're doing. And there were a bunch of other people going, is that how it works? Is that what's going on? Because this Christmas, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in, we're all coming in with a bottle of wine, and we're going to sit and watch you. <laughs> but it's you know it's true. I, I you know I like the challenge. I remember very well the moment when I the the flame was passed from my my mother who'd done it for whatever how many years to me, and I did feel a burden of responsibility, and managed to get it all on the table within the within the given time, um, and have carried on doing so. So, I, you know, I, I like it. But then we get into that thing, the, the phrase that, that must never be uttered because there really shouldn't be such a thing as leftovers. Historic, yes. So shall I do this bit? Or do you, do you want the fact that the first reference to the word leftover is in a, uh, a recipe book put out by a fridge company at the beginning of the 20th century? I think I included that in one of my books. Or did I get it from you? Uh, I think. I can't sure. remember. I know we've talked or rather ranted about it quite a lot. Uh, and it does bug me because until you get to these, the books behind me are all in um, chronological order and you can't see the... Uh, the depth and the width. 
Well, there's the 16th century through to the about 1890 on the other side. Yeah. But until you get to about here, yeah. there aren't any leftovers. It's cold meat cookery or it's um, sort of what to do with roast meats and that kind of thing. And, and they're just pre-cooked ingredients. And um, I mean, just food. Just, yeah. And it's brilliant because obviously you've got something that then requires a lot less processing. So, um, I mean, I spent the sort of back end of last year and, and the front end of this year writing a, a book on Christmas or Christmas foods, I should say, history of Christmas foods. And I wasn't going to include a chapter on leftovers precisely because why would I? I don't regard them as a, a thing. And then all my friends went, you have to talk about leftovers. It's a ritual at Christmas. And I thought, good God, what's wrong with people? But but it's kind of true. I and mean, the, the term may be wrong, but the overcooking and overfilling of the mm. table on Christmas Day has become a totem of we're OK. And let me just acknowledge that not everybody is OK. Um, and we know that. But the fact that you overfill your table is a totem of you're OK. And then your fridge is filled with what you didn't eat on the first day and call them whatever you will. You will then start making other dishes from them. So My problem I, with leftovers, I think, is the idea that it's derogatory, that you somehow... Yes, yeah, no, I, abso I absolutely agree. That is the um, problem. Yeah, whereas actually a, a turkey toad in the hole or, um, you know, cold refried sausages with the remains of the... I mean, not that anybody ever has roast potatoes left over, but the kind of concept might be there that you can refry things. I just, they're glorious. They are better than the meal themselves, especially if you've done turkey, which I regard as a terrible, terrible thing to cook. But... You know, they are, you didn't talk about turkey being vile. I, I put that in mind. Oh, there's, there's one column where I talk about, I call it the meats. I've got the Christmas yes. meat sweats and the Christmas meat sweats where I'm sitting there tumbling through. It used to be very simple. 25 years ago, we all did turkey, apart from a couple of Oxford colleges and maybe, well, not even you. Everybody did turkey. That was fine. And then we, we, we developed a, an interesting food culture. This is a good thing where you could start doing other things. You go, well, really, it should be roast beef on the on the table, which I believe is something you say, or a three-bird roast, or maybe you could do goose. And then you start circula circulating through all of these things. And, you know, I keep trying to... Oh, then you get to the point about the, the turkey, where now, uh, because they're being specially bred and they've got names like bronze, whatever, and you go, well, actually, of course, it's, it's just a large game bird, isn't it? Is it... Um, <laughs> I'd love to well, see. Was, I'd love to I'm see like, try, someone trying to hunt a effing turkey. Can you imagine? Apparently, it was that, really good fun. I've got well, quotes from people in the 1790s saying, "Actually, no one should be bothering to eat turkey that's farmed because it's so insipid. But if you go on a wild turkey hunt, it's incredible." Oh, well, I can I can imagine that that you'd have to hang the turkey for quite a while, or it would be a pretty pretty stringy bird. No, well, swan, you used to have to grab them while they were young and then cram them, <laughs> force feed them, and then eat only that year's swans. Just as an extra fact for everyone. Yeah, as I often say, if you're now appalled by what Annie Gray is telling you, please complain to the uh, to the Victorians or the Georgians. Uh, uh, actually, Swan was eaten up until the 1930s, so you can complain to anybody prior to that point, really. OK. I do remember when we, we did the kitchen cabinet, we've done it both from Oxford and Cambridge, and at each point we've asked them if anybody has eaten Swan. <laughs> And there's always been some hands have gone up because it's only the Oxbridge colleges, which still a few of them still have the right to serve it. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a great moment, that one. Uh, let's move away from Christmas. Yes. Briefly. We've had quite a few questions as well, actually, on this. All right. Um, which was about your childhood foods growing up. I mean, again, in the book, you talk, I think one of the one of my favourite essays is one about 
passing down recipes and the idea that you inherit recipes from your parents and that they're somehow time honored and like you the only thing i inherited from my parents was the ability to use an oxo cube uh they really couldn't cook and i, I don't have recipes from i i was i was kind of i mean slightly puncturing the idea of that because i think our modern food culture is so diverse in a way that our parents wasn't that those that we still hold on to from our parents are usually out of nostalgia and affection rather than a desperate desire to eat that food yeah there's a so, lot of tins a lot of tins involved in the stuff i grew up on so what is there anything that you you were well the one about? story i always tell is my mother claire being a uh, you know very busy journalist acne aunt, and all of that she came up with a way of putting a whole chicken with vegetables in a chicken brick first thing in the morning putting it in the oven for nine hours and then coming back having worked a full day and it was not until I was quite grown up that I realised roast chicken could have texture because obviously the damn thing would, I mean, it's not a bad way of cooking a chicken every now and then, but every time. Um, so she did that. Uh, if she was, if she was doing for posh, if she, you know, if her editor was coming round for dinner and she had to throw a proper dinner party, it'd be Kulibiak, um, a proper Kulibiak in puff pastry with salmon and wild rice and all of that. And a little bit of egg, the dish that our colleague, Tim Haywood, was it Tim Haywood who thought it was disgraceful and awful? Yeah, but his version had sultanas in oh. and I still can't get my head round. I know. How? We employ him, but that's nice of us. So have you got loads of, you have got loads of questions. We're beginning there. to get questions in. Um, what I would say is that if you have got questions, stick them in the q and I've been keeping an eye on them on the way through. So I'm bringing some of them in uh, as we speak. Well, but if you've got burning questions, ask them. One thing that has come up a couple of times is uh, your opinion on vegan food and uh, the vegetarian movement at the moment. I mean, it's, it's one of the things we're often to criticize for on the kitchen cabinet is this is the fact that we often talk about meat and certainly because part of it like christmas we have just talked a lot about it but it is well, that's true there is a, there is a massive imperative to eat less meat um we should do i review i've reviewed uh totally vegan restaurants i think twice in the past year um uh, I, I I do hold to the to the view that non-meat cookery should be good because of the fact, not in spite of. I have very little time for meat substitutes. I don't think they're very nice. I do understand that it's seen as a gateway through by which we can increase the number of non-meat eaters or non-meat eating, but it's still uh, it, it doesn't entirely convince me, which I suspect is probably my problem. I've looked at some of the ingredients that go into making these products and they bother me. Um, I'm not one of those who goes, oh, all, you know, all processed food is bad food. I don't think that's the case. But some of the processes required to get to an impossible burger do seem slightly raised eyebrow worthy. Um, but yeah, no, there's an absolute imperative for it. And we see some fantastic non-meat cookery. And I use that phrase non-meat cookery because... I, the words vegan and vegetarian have started to become slightly pejorative in some people's minds. So I want to avoid that. They also become exclusive. And I understand why they carry with them a political baggage. And that's entirely fine. But I'd kind of like to get away from it. Mm, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think in the past, you had a lot of non-meat cookery, well, partly because people couldn't afford meat. And it's one oh. of the things that we forget, I think, today is that there are choices that we are able to make that people in the past didn't have. And it's it's something that I think we should feel perhaps more humble about. Um, 
on the subject of climate change, of food ways, yeah. obviously it's an enormous topic. We cannot do anything more than scratch the surface. But you've written before about the complicated nature of a lot of these debates. For example, the fact that people talk about carbon footprints and about air miles and food miles, but actually notoriously lamb produced in New Zealand is better for us to eat, environmentally speaking, than lamb produced it's, in Britain. It, it, well, Think the thing that. is, it's all really, really complicated. It's so complicated. People hate the fact it's complicated. So I wrote a book in 2013, which started to me is about updating, but it was, and I, I sometimes think the book was too early. It was called Greedy Man, The Hungry World. And I was taking apart middle-class assumptions about what sustainable means. And the, the stuff that I really got into was what's called comparative advantage, which is the ability of certain bits of landscape to produce ingredients with a lower carbon footprint. So if you look at a map of England, you will see that uh, enormous amounts of potato farming takes place um, in East Anglia, and that's because you will get 20 tonnes an acre. Now, if you live in London and think, but I want to eat my potatoes locally, so you start trying to grow them in the Thames clay, you'll get 16 tonnes an acre, which means you now need 25% more land or shed loads of carbon inputs, both of which are carbon inputs, to produce the same tonnage. It makes much more sense to grow them in East Anglia and bring them to London. And when I get into that stuff, people get quite cross. But the, the bottom line is the proportion of the carbon footprint of your food when you do a whole life cycle analysis, which is the carbon involved in the people making it and the yield and all of that stuff, it's about 2 to 4%. What really matters is how your food is produced and not where. That doesn't mean that local is not a nice narrative. It's good for uh, economic frameworks in certain neighbourhoods. It's a good story. Uh, it shortens supply chains, which can be very important as well. But it cannot be taken as a virtuous element in itself, in and of itself, because it's so much more complicated than that. You're looking at the questions, aren't you? I am, yes, yes. Give I'm us not, the names I am, of some I am of the, listening to you as I know, well. I know. Give us the names of some of the people who are asking. Because... Oh, right. In that case, uh, I'm sort of combining questions. Yeah, as I know. Well, so. Something uh, some, some, they'll love a name check. All right. And in that case, Alicia Sherber, or Sheber, has asked, what are your favourite foods to eat to fuel your brain when you're in the flow of writing? I find if I eat when I'm in the flow of writing, I get crumbs on the keyboard. Yeah, no, I, I'm the only thing that I'm likely to bring to my desk is a bowl of pistachios, shell on pistachios. I do that quite regularly, um, partly because I know it will stop me typing because you can't un, you know, take them out. I like the repetitiveness of it. I like the, that old phrase, mindfulness of it. So shell on pistachios, I have lots of those. Um, I've always loved them. I find them completely involving. That's the one thing I have next to my keyboard. Gosh, I'm completely the opposite. I need to have no distractions, otherwise I'll just be distracted. Uh, Jamie Simpson says, what's your ultimate comfort food and drink? Something you've got to have after a bad day. Well, it's not necessarily after a bad, a bad day. I think my go-to is cheese on toast. But I gussy it up. And I, I think anybody who just does, here's a piece of bread, here's some cheese, put it under the grill, is missing the point. So mine, obviously, you have to lightly toast it first in the toaster so that you have removed some of the moisture. Then you obviously layer it with your, your cheeses of uh, choice. Then... Which are, come on, come well, on. It's just, actually, I, I am, I'm cheddared all the way down the line. It's just a good, a, a good block cheddar. Um, uh, then um, I'm, I'm all for the sliced bacon. When I've said that before, I caused a national incident once. Uh, I think it was a kitchen cabinet thing. So slice up some streaky bacon. Uh, I used sardines? Caribbean, 
Sorry? Do you ever go down the sardine route? Oh, don't be disgusting. Um, the, <laughs> They're really good on a pizza. Caribbean Everyday Spice, uh, which is one of those really good all-purpose seasonings. A splash of Tabasco, that goes under the grill. And it's only ready, I have to say, when the edges are slightly burnt. Then it's done. Now, you do talk about your love of burnt toast. Yes, apparently, there's, there's if anybody wants that's... to email me to tell me that this is uh, a carcinogen, there are many others, I'm sure, hanging around in my life. I, you know, th there are worse things I've done in my life. The occasional piece of burnt toast. I, I, I do remember once I'd written this piece, it's in the book about how I love burnt toast, and I went down to the uh, local perfectly middle-class farmer's market near where I live in South London. I went to the bread stall, and I said, can I have a loaf of the country right? And the guy behind the stand said, um, would you like a dark one or will you burn it yourself later? <laughs> Um, yes. Hey, on that one, I'm just disagreeing. Um, I like and, and the comfort drink, by the way, actually, this is really kind of banal. Uh, the comfort drink is just a glass of some bog standard New Zealand Sauvignon I don't have to think about. For a while, uh, the, the cork being pulled, as I said, my kids are now 22 and, and almost 18. But for a while, the cork being pulled at the point, or the, the screw cap coming off, one of those bottles was the sound of the children are in bed. So I found I found it very comforting. Um, and it's a habit you eventually have to kick, isn't it? But uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't even have children and I haven't kicked that habit. <laughs> I just have the habit. It means... Work is done. The evening has yep. started. Oh, there you go. Um, Those comfort food and drink. Yes, marvellous. I see. I quite like a cup of there's a thing called biscuit brew that you can get, which is a filthy habit because it tastes like tea that you've dunked a biscuit in, kind of like Horlicks mixed with tea, and it is amazing. Half past three, when you've got that lull and you think, "Oh God, I've got another two thousand words to write," and you know you're not going to do it. That, that's a it's a cuddle in a mug. Ah, uh, cuddle in a mug. Cuddle in a mug. Yeah, you never um, get that past the editor. Hmm, probably not. Uh, an anonymous person has said, are you self-taught in your wonderful home cooking? And I would add to that, uh, that if you're not, what would be your sort of go-to books or even indeed YouTube videos for people who wish well, to? Well, uh, yeah, I don't think anybody is self-taught uh, if they've got cookbooks in the house because they are, are passing on the knowledge. I am very, very fond of a Reader's Digest cookery encyclopedia by Anne Willans, who is one of the greats of those sorts of, do you know Anne Willans stuff? One of the greats of serious cookbook writing. And I think that book probably over the years has taught me more than anything else. Um, I don't think it'll be a surprise for anybody who read the column that I wrote um, that, uh, I'm a big fan of Gary Rhodes' New British Classics. I learned a lot from that. Actually, usually from the orange pages in there. Um, and uh, one of the, I've got a slight skill, which is going to a restaurant, eating a dish, and being able to work out how it's done if it's quite complicated. I can do that. I can take them apart and put them back together. They're, I think I've had literally one cookery lesson in my life. Um, I quite enjoyed it, but didn't feel the need to go back. But I think books can teach you an awful lot. Books are amazing. Books are amazing. Fantastic. Aren't they? Yes. Uh, Alexis Conran has asked a very kitchen cabinet style question. This and is, well, he would do. Alexis Conran is um, a, a broadcaster and a fine musician, uh, not musician, magician um, and inspirational. Hello, Alexis. Oh, well, in that case, Rubini's beheading a lady is right up the street. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, which is the most useless kitchen accessory you've ever bought? The most useless kitchen accessory that I've ever bought. You see, this divides some people. But I'm pretty convinced that the garlic crusher is a pointless, pointless item. We had this recently on the show, didn't we? Mm, and it um, quite, quite, quite heated it got as it well. Got, it really did get quite, it really did, Yeah, but I, I just can't see the point of them because it, it, it's like the old myth that celery uses more calories to eat than it actually provides. I think um, the garlic crusher creates more work than it actually uh, takes away. In other words, the cleaning of it is such a pain in the ass that you might as well just use a knife. There you go. So I'm going. I'm going really boring. I'm going with the garlic crusher. Yeah, no, fair deal. An evening, Alexis. <laughs> um, Andrew Leonard has asked several questions. And oh, he has, doesn't pick, he? I know, and I'm I'm trying to pick one. Um, uh, that's Rubini. It's not a book. Uh, I've put it there to uh, cover the fact that the book behind it's got a really shiny cover on. Oh, I see. OK. That answers that question. It's not a book. Don't buy it. Uh, it was a great magic show, apparently, in the Victorian era. Uh, but my other half does magic. So it's a, anyway, let's not go yeah. there. Uh, I remember Jay confessing that his objective in writing a column was to entertain his readers. Has he ever, on reflection, felt that this overrode his need to be fair? You know, the, the ironic, ironic thing is that I did write one column where I took apart Gary Rhodes for his on-screen persona. Long time ago, very long time ago. I don't know why I did it. It was horrible. Absolutely horrible. It was quite entertaining, but it was horrible. And in retrospect, I was thinking, why did I attack the person? I, I would like to say it was a long time ago. I was very young in the job. Um, uh, and it might have been kind of entertaining to some, but I just thought, in, in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely embarrassed of that column. So, yes, that's the one that always comes to mind. Um, I can actually see one of the others that Andrew's like, which was, why did I not slag off serving food on board slates, things in miniature supermarket troubles? I think because I'd done that subject to death. I've, I've said it so often. That column is somewhere in there, but it, it, um, it, 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 I did do that as a column for the the hungry, you know, hungry eater. Um, but I didn't think it made the cut on the grounds of being too obvious. We all know that serving food on slates is ridiculous. Stop it! But it, I didn't feel the need to say it again. I think that Rob Owen Brown had a brilliant line on that one time in the kitchen cabin. I think it was his first show in Clitheroe when an audience member said what does serving food on a slate add to it? And Rob just looked at him <laughs> about five pounds a dish from what I can see. And it was just, it was so perfect. And now whenever I see it on a slate, I just think. Yeah. 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 Uh, Philip McCorkle asks, who are your writing or critic heroes, such as A.A. Gill or Charlie Brooker, Michael Winner even? So maybe get- well, I liked Michael. Heroes. I mean, I, uh, Michael Winner and I would never have seen eye to eye politically, but I, uh, on balance, I think he was on the side of the angels. He was a ludicrous man who knew lu how ludicrous he was. He was giving you an insight into what it's like to be a ludicrous rich person who's grossly entitled. He did it with <laughs> panache. Plus as a young journalist, when I had to, I, at various times, I had to phone people up, you know, famous people and get them to comment on the, the issue of the day. And um, you'd have to go through agents and it would be tiresome and annoying, but Michael Winner would always pick up his own phone. So he, he's okay. I would say my, my great hero in this mold was actually um, the late, great Jonathan Gold. Uh, 
of LA Weekly and then later LA Times, who died only about two years ago, very sadly, um, who was who treated restaurant reviewing in Los Angeles as an act of anthropology, social anthropology, in that he had clocked earlier than almost anybody that it was never the good food was never going to be found in the glittering gastro palaces. It was always going to be in the small community restaurants from ethnic groups all over the city because it is a patchwork. Um, and his his writing was beautiful and his um, his approach was a delight and he was an absolute loss. There you go, Jonathan Gold. Look his stuff up. Mm, it is very, very good. Uh, VJ, my aunt told me if you can read, you can cook. Do you agree? No. Um, and it's... <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like to agree, um, but there are some people, there are some people who just can't. Um, it's extraordinary, but it, you give them a recipe, it has directions, they could just follow every stage, but there is something missing and they just can't do it. It is a very small proportion of the population, I think, who faced by a recipe come over grossly incompetent. But it's true. There are some people who simply cannot follow a recipe, who perhaps are not interested that interested in food. And that's fair enough. Not everybody has to be. But yeah, I, I, I don't think it's absolutely true because there are some people who can't follow a recipe. I think there are also recipes and there are recipes. Um, I mean, I've written recipe books and it is very hard, actually. Harder than you think. Yeah, yeah. Because you write down what you would do, and you've 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 written them as well, I think. But yeah. you you write down what you would do, but there's a lot of assumptions involved when you do that, and sometimes you don't think actually I need to tell people that their eggs should be at room temperature, or I'm going to just assume that they will season the dish to their own personal tastes, um, and it's always quite frustrating actually as a recipe writer when you get the edits back and sometimes they're very pedantic and they'll say things like exactly how much salt and you say well then recently I cooked a brilliant recipe by Jose Pizarro the the brilliant Spanish oh, maybe it's unfair to name well like I have so it's a spi uh, beef cheeks and a spicy tomato sauce and it um, tells you to sear the beef cheeks uh, flour them sear them take them out then cook all the other things in the pan at no point does it tell you to put the beef cheeks back <laughs> now obviously I did I spotted that that was clear, but it, but some people but, wouldn't. Some people wouldn't. They would they would carry on cooking their tomato sauce and end up with two seared but raw beef cheeks on one side and a nice sauce on the other, and go, well, this is a terrible recipe. It's you know it's harder than some people think. And sometimes mistakes do creep in, and you didn't mean them to. Um, yes, of course. I've got one in one of my books where I've asked people to add the gelatin twice, and if they do that, they will be able <laughs> to make a ball. their salmon moves <laughs> off the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it will definitely set. Of course it um, will. Yeah. Um, let's have a look. Uh, somebody anonymous has asked if there are any tips for somebody who wants to go down the food history route. Uh, start reading. Read everything I've got behind me. Um, and then it, it's difficult. There are no courses. There are very limited ways to do it. Unless you're based in the States, in which case you can. There are a few master's courses that you could look at, which are not specifically food history, but are related if you want to go down and can afford to go down the academic route. But I would say read things, enjoy things, go to conferences, start cooking. Uh, so, as we're talking about you and I can see we're almost coming to the end. We are. 
Um, over your, well, I think it's your right shoulder, our, our left, is a copy of the Kitchen Cabinet book, close to our hearts, because we've been doing this for almost 10 years. We've never done a book before. And when I say we, I only wrote the foreword and you wrote the whole thing. But it's a brilliant foreword, Jay. I mean, uh, thank you so much. Do you, was it a challenge to try and boil down the essence of the madness of a radio show into one book? Uh, yes. Well, yes and no. In some ways, it wasn't a challenge because the show is delightful. And I was deeply, deeply honoured to be asked to write the book because I love doing the show. So in many ways, it was brilliant because actually I sort of wanted to get the brilliance across. And because I've been on a lot of the episodes, I felt I could do that. So in some ways, it wasn't because the show is such a beautiful thing and there's so many brilliant contributors the problem was that we used AI to do the transcripts and the transcripts were terrible and I couldn't tell who said what and I have no idea what pink grapefruit your genitalia is but apparently it's a cocktail and I'm Jay Rhino which but I yeah actually... you are you're Jay Rhino and I'm angry Ray yes. uh, so it, it was it was but none I of think... those just to say none of those mistakes turn up in the book so it is but you could get them together great I did sneak pink grapefruit your genitalia into the acknowledgements because no no editor ever checks the acknowledgements so I tend to put things in there that I think they'd object to uh but no I think we've reflected the show really well in it it's, a, it's an almanac it goes through the year month by month and also has a town for each month which is what we used to do when we used to be on the road and one mm. day will be again and it's got everything that you'd expect from the show in it. So it's history, it's science, it's top tips, it's tricks, and it's recipes, it's, it's a, sarcasm, it's knob gags, it's... Yeah, and there's a candle salad. I think you're meant to invite Daisy to pop back up now. I was going to say that we are pretty much at the end, and nobody else has asked any interesting sudden questions. So what I'm going to do is draw to a halt with one final question, which yeah. is just... In your travels, what's the strangest dish you've ever eaten and either enjoyed or hurled up afterwards? Which I think is a perfect way to end. Salt fermented sea cucumber in a Tokyo gastro, uh, high gastronomic restaurant. It is slippery and slimy like a raw trout that's been left in a warm car on a summer's afternoon to develop a thick coating of slime. I never want to eat that again. And on that lovely note, hello, Daisy. <laughs> Fantastic note to end. Um, what a rollicking and brilliant hour spent in your presence. It's been such a joy to listen to you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to discover that you still follow recipes like yeah. us mere mortals and to find out for, about everything from the most useless kitchen accessories to burnt toast, picnic food, and so, so much more, including the Christmas cooking, which I'm, I'm, I, I think I've picked up many tips that might help me to get through Christmas this year. So thank you so, so much. And thank you to our audience for the incredible questions. We got over 40 questions and I'm sorry we couldn't come to all of them, but um, it was fantastic to be with you. So Chewing the Fat is out now, um, as is the Kitchen Cabinet companion book. Um, and if that's not enough, then Jay is also going to be on tour with a show based on My Last Supper. And it will be in Leeds, Newcastle and London in the coming Newcastle underline near Stoke-on-Trent, not Newcastle. The people of Newcastle Gateshead will be furious when they discover I'm not there. So near Stoke-on-Trent. Okay, great. Um, so thank you. And that is all we have time for this evening. But thank you um, to Dr. Annie Gray, to Jay Rayner, and to our wonderful audience this evening. And we will see you again very, very soon. Good night. Good night. Good night.